Welcome to the Sydney Uni EU podcast. Today's talk is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 to 25, and was given by Rowan Kemp. Thanks very much. Great to see you here. If you've made it through the crazy rain and weather today to Eastern Avenue, or if you're there on the live stream, really glad that you could join us today. The topic we're going to talk about is the one behind me, how to gain wisdom. How to gain wisdom. So just to get your minds in the right space, I want you to chat to the person next to you about two questions, very, very simple. Firstly, what's, who's the smartest person that you know or who you've ever met? The smartest person who you know or who you've ever met? And secondly, what makes you say they're so smart? What was it that gave, made you think that's their great achievement? Have a chat to the people next to you just for a minute or so. Did anyone, anyone uh, was suitably impressed by the, the information you were shared by the person next to you? Did anyone met a really smart person or you were, were you impressed? Anyone in the room? None of us. Oh, yep. Wow, someone who built a computer in Minecraft. That, yep, that's an impressive achievement, I guess. You can just go and buy one, that would be easier. But yeah, that's pretty impressive cheap. Anyone else, anyone else you've met who's just really super smart? Um, I guess one of, the, one of the things about hanging around at university for a while is you get to meet quite a few smart people. Um, I, I went to school with a guy who didn't place in the top 10 in the state in the HSC. He didn't place in the top five in the state. He was the top in the state. He just topped the whole HSC. And I met another guy who apparently, rumour has it, he was a very humble guy, he didn't ever tell you this, another guy who apparently topped every subject he did in his undergraduate arts degree. Every subject at Sydney Uni. I mean, another, oh, anyway, yeah, you, if you hang around at Sydney Uni, you meet some smart people. But uh, if you, now that you can do international travel again, one day you might get to travel to the National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. And if you go there, you can find this inscription. It's a statement by Joseph Henry, who was the first secretary of the Smithsonian Institute. He made it in the 1800s. It captures much of what we call now the Enlightenment spirit. I'll read out the full quote. Um, there's some excerpts up on the screen behind me. He says, modern civilization depends on science. James Smithson was well aware that knowledge should not be viewed as existing in isolated parts but as a whole, each portion of which throws light on the other, and that the tendency of all is to improve the human mind and give it new sources of power and enjoyment. Narrow minds think nothing of importance but their own favourite pursuit, but liberal views exclude no branch of science or literature, for they all contribute to sweeten, to adorn and to embellish life. Science is the pursuit above all which impresses us with the capacity of man for intellectual and moral progress and awakens the human intellect to aspiration for a higher condition of humanity. There in that statement is a great belief in the powers of the human mind. That is the Enlightenment humanist project carved literally into the walls of one of the world's great institutions. That in the gaining of human wisdom, we can improve the human condition. We can gain power and make real moral progress. And you've come to university to study 
at Sydney University, the oldest tertiary institution in the country, dedicated to the passing on of human wisdom and learning, and it's indeed one of the great repositories of human knowledge in this country. You may well have walked past Fisher Library, who knows, you may even have gone inside it, who knows. But Fisher Library, how many volumes do you think the University Library holds? A million? That'd be a lot. Two million? Four million? No, the answer, 5.2 million physical volumes plus in excess of another 300,000 e-books and then more than 100,000 journals. But our university is not just a repository of human knowledge, it's also one of the foremost places in Australia that where the envelope of human understanding is being pushed back, where the frontiers of human knowledge are expanding. According to the latest figures I could find, in one year, academics from Sydney Uni published 378 books. That's seven books a week. On top of that, 2,770 journal articles in a year. That's another 53 journal articles every week coming out of this institution. So just on the numbers alone, you have come to one of the high towers of human knowledge and wisdom. And presumably you're here to get just a little bit of that wisdom for yourself. Enough to get a degree anyway. Enough to maybe secure you a decent job with reasonable prospects. Honestly, I've not met many students who come to Sydney Uni who are here purely for the joy of learning, purely for just the acquisition of wisdom. Oh, no, we, we want some wisdom, but wisdom as a means to an end. And I want to circle back to that a little later on. Mind you, we here at Sydney Uni are just bit players in the global quest for wisdom. Each year, I'm told, there are somewhere between 1.8 million and 2.5 million peer-reviewed articles published in academic journals each year, and the number is going up by 60,000 every year. And to pick just one field in chemistry, there's about half a million articles per year being published. We human beings are constructing a huge edifice called knowledge, a massive ivory tower of human wisdom and understanding. And yet God, and when I say God, I mean the Christian understanding of God as the one true and living God revealed by Jesus of Nazareth and recorded for us in the Christian Bible. That God has said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Here is God's public policy. He is going to destroy the so-called wisdom of the wise. It's not a secret plan. He's declared it publicly. This God, the only God who really exists, he will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Now, we need to think carefully about that before we leap to the wrong conclusion. What does God mean when he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise? Does he mean he's against human understanding, the whole academic endeavour? What about all the good things that have come from human knowledge and understanding, all the improvements in health and education? Is God anti-science? Is he anti-progress, anti-learning? Does he want to, us all to live in some sort of I don't know, like the Amish. What does God... Now, the answer is, of course, no. We're to rejoice and to thank God for the improvements in our lives because of human knowledge. God has given us the capacity to learn, to understand, to make progress. God's not anti-university. He's not anti-learning. He's not anti-libraries. He's not even anti-exams, which, understandingly, is a bit of a disappointment. The problem with worldly wisdom 
is in its arrogant ignoring of God. Worldly wisdom says, I, haven't, I have no need of God. We can just work everything out for ourselves. God has no place in the picture I am building, in this truth I am putting forward. Whereas a Christian perspective from the Bible is that all truth is actually God's truth because all the world is God's. He's its creator. He's its sustainer. He's ultimately its judge and its rebuilder. That's why the Bible teaches us repeatedly that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The starting point for true wisdom is the fear of the Lord, a reverent acknowledgement of him that he is God and we are not. Without that foundation, you can know lots of true things about the economy or history or the law or educational theory or the mating rituals of New Zealand swamp rats. Like you can know lots of stuff, but you don't know the thing that matters most and which ultimately holds it all together. You don't know God. And so God's publicly stated policy is he will destroy this worldly wisdom, this knowledge or wisdom that excludes him and that tries to proceed without him and which is therefore the height of human arrogance. How's God going to see through this policy? Now, I can think of a few cool ways that God could destroy the wisdom of the wise. He could send down a giant foot from the sky and squash Fisher Library in the stack. That would be somewhat arresting and interesting and would grab the attention of the university. He could launch the perfect computer virus that would take down the internet, destroy every web page in existence. That would be the end of a fair bit of wisdom and a fair bit of rubbish as well. But the interesting thing is though, this is not a plan for the future so much as a plan God says he's already achieved in the past. He's already destroyed the wisdom of the wise. Well, where did he do that? Well, we need to look a bit more carefully at what God says here then to understand what he's telling us. This particular statement that we've started with comes from the New Testament in the Christian Bible in a letter written in the first century AD by the Apostle Paul, who is one of the eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And he writes it to a group of Christians in a place called Corinth, the ruins of which you can still visit in Greece today. If you were here last week, you'll recall that the Corinthian Christians, instead of living for God in the way he wanted them to, they had retained a lot of the worldly values of their surrounding Corinthian culture and walked those into the church. In particular, they'd taken the worldly values of what wisdom looked like from their culture, which esteemed fancy debating styles and impressive impromptu speeches and clever rhetoric. They'd walked those values into their Christian community and were now assessing different Christian leaders based on these worldly standards of wisdom. And so the Apostle Paul writes to them to help them see the mistake that they're making. And he does it by explaining God's public policy with respect to worldly wisdom, that God has already expose the futility of worldly human wisdom. Where has he done that? Well, he's done it in the death of Jesus on the cross nearly 2,000 years ago. That was the big point in the passage that we had read for us by Jared at the beginning from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 to 25. Let me just put two verses up on the screen for you to look at. You can see there in verse number 20, Paul asks rhetorically, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
The answer that he assumes is, yes, he has indeed. The wise one, the scribe, the debater of this age, their foolishness has already been exposed, even while they continue to argue and pontificate. The question is how? How has God exposed the foolishness of their wisdom? So what I want you to do is have a look at those verses just on the screen there, verse 20 and 21, and discuss it maybe with the person next to you. How, according to these verses, how has God exposed the foolishness of worldly wisdom? Have a chat to the person next to you, see what you can work out. You can see there in verse 21, how has God exposed the foolishness of the so-called wise? Well, in verse 21, through their great wisdom and learning, they still have not known God. That's how God has exposed and defeated the worldly wisdom of every age, back then as at now. He has not made himself known through worldly human intellectual achievement. I want you to imagine for a moment the whole of humanity gathered into one great tower of academic achievement. Now note, that is not the same as intelligence. You can have great intelligence, but not have the same opportunities that say you and I have had academically. But let's just for the sake of the exercise, imagine the whole of humanity placed in a tower according to our academic achievement, our great learning. At the base, there is the tragedy of 20% of the world's population who've never had the opportunity to learn to read and write. Hundreds of millions of people. And gradually you work your way up the tower through those blessed with a primary education to the much smaller percentage who get a secondary education. And then there's the 31% of Australians who have a tertiary education and God willing, one day that'll be you too. You'll get there soon. You're doing pretty well in the great scheme of things. And then there's the postgraduate degrees, the scholars, the academics, and there at the top, reaching up to the sky, are the select few, the top of the pile, the Newtons, Einsteins, Hawkings, the Shakespeare, the Mozart, the great novelists, the wisest politicians, the, the great religious figures. There they are, straining upwards to grab hold of God, to know him through their great learning. But God looks down on the lot and says, no, you can't know me that way through your worldly wisdom, through the mere exercise of your intellect. God has chosen to not make himself knowable through that route. That's how he's destroyed the wisdom of the wise, by not allowing himself to be known through our high ivory tower. Let me give you an example. If you want to appear learned, Here's a sure way, write a book and give it a very impressive sounding title. I remember coming across this particular book with its very imposing title, Mathematical Undecidability, Quantum Non-Locality and the Question of the Existence of God. Exactly. In this, in this book, a whole bunch of very serious scientists explore very deep ideas in mathematics and physics. The Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle, Gödel's incompleteness theorems, they try to establish what these ideas at the very forefront of our human understanding tell us about the existence of God. The conclusion they come to, the answer, 
They grab the scraps they can, but at the end of the day, they don't tell us very much about even just the existence of God, let alone what he's like. God has chosen to not make himself discoverable by the exercise of human wisdom, the mere use of our intellect. And in that way, he's destroyed the seeming wisdom of the wise. But God has not left himself hidden. Whilst he's chosen to not make himself known through human intellectual achievement, he has, in fact, revealed himself to all. Go back to the verses we looked at a moment ago. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. God makes himself known to all people everywhere through this message that is announced about Jesus. A message that seems to be foolish because it's about a guy, Jesus, who died on a cross. Yet it's through this message of the cross that God makes himself known to the world. And this knowledge of God is not the preserve of the powerful, of the academically privileged. It's available to anyone who believes it. See, we rightly hate the privilege that comes to the elite. Well, we hate it in theory. We like it if it sort of benefits us. But, but we hate the idea that privilege just goes to the elite. Why should the rich, the powerful, the socially advantaged get even more while the rest miss out? Well, God hates it too. That's not how he operates. That's not how it is with him. In fact, his public policy is to frustrate the wisdom of the wise, but to lift up the humble. Paul goes on in this same chapter a bit later to point out that God's public policy is reflected in the fact if you look around at the people who follow Jesus, if you look around at the green shirts, it's on, you know, the EU shirts, the EU people at Sydney University, you are not necessarily going to see people who are wise, sorry, or powerful, or those of exalted social standing. Quite the contrary. God chooses the lowly. He chooses the weak, the foolish, and grants them his spirit so that they believe this message about Jesus. And he does so in order to compound the shame of the strong and the wise. Think again about that great tower of human academic achievement. There at the top of the tower, there are the great Richard Dawkins of the world. Those who in arrogant foolishness they proclaim it's all rubbish, there is no God. And yet there are children, teenagers, illiterate millions in the two-thirds world who under the hand of God and the guidance of his spirit, they have heard this message of the cross of Jesus and they've believed. There is the wisdom of God at work, shaming the wise and the strong of the world in their arrogance, yet revealing himself in love to the ones the world ignores. Of course, there are many educated and intelligent people too who are similarly blessed by God with his spirit and have come to believe as well. But that's the point. It's not actually about how intelligent you are. It's about whether or not you believe. So let's press down then into this message about Jesus and his death because according to this passage, it's not just where, where God has shown his wisdom. It's also where God shows his power. God does something through this message for those who believe it. And if you believe it, it will, without exaggeration, transform you. Have a look at the next few sentences of the passage. I'll put them on the screen. From 1 Corinthians chapter, 22, uh, chapter 1, verse 22. 
Paul says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The heart of what Paul has to say to these Corinthians is about Jesus' death. As you're no doubt aware, Jesus was executed by the Romans in about 30 AD by crucifixion. He was hung on a cross until he died. It was a particularly gruesome form of execution reserved for the lowest of the lows. It was excruciatingly painful and degrading, and therefore it was regarded as too offensive to talk about in polite company. That Jesus died on the cross is just an historical fact. You can investigate the matter for yourself. But if you wanted to make the Christian message popular or even just palatable, you would be very sorely tempted to push the means of Jesus' death into the background. There was no glory or impressiveness about being executed on a cross. It was in fact a problematic message. But Paul says here, we preach Christ crucified. Even though, he says, it's a stumbling block to the Jews and regarded as foolishness by the Gentile non-Jews who heard it. For the Jews, Christ was a title of their promised victorious king. Christ crucified? That's, that's not a victorious king, at least not in their mind. So they stumble over that idea as oxymoronic. And similarly for the Gentiles, non-Jews, like most of us here today, to proclaim that this man who was executed by the Romans as a criminal, he's today king over all, lord over all. That has all the appearances of just sheer foolishness. It's ridiculous. To illustrate the point, here's a famous bit of graffiti from the second century making fun of Christians. The idea of worshipping a, a crucified God was as sensible as worshipping a donkey, according to this graffiti artist. It just seems stupid. And this message of the cross came across as foolishness in the first century. If it's not regarded as foolishness today, I think it's often just written off as irrelevant. And yet we're told here that this is not just God's wisdom that expo exposes our foolishness in writing it off. This message of Jesus' death is, always, is also God's power through which he achieves something wonderful for you and for me. So how is this message about Jesus' death God's power? What, what has God achieved through this cross? Well, Paul mentions this a bit further on in chapter 1, verse 30. He says, It is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, and then three significant words, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Paul uses three technical religious words here to summarise what God achieves in Jesus' death. Righteousness, sanctification and redemption. In fact, it's, it's not just a summary of what God has achieved. It's a summary of what God offers you as a gift through believing this message about Jesus. So let's fill out each of these three key words. First, righteousness. Righteousness just means right standing with God. The reality is that our our arrogant ignoring of God has put us offside with God. The Bible is clear that God is the one who, who made you, who, who sustains your every breath. He knows the number of hairs on your head, 
which is an impressive feat for some of us more than others. He loves you more than you will ever fully comprehend. But then we metaphorically give him the finger and tell him to take a hike. And in so doing, we declare ourselves really to be his enemies. We're the petulant teenager, if you like, who runs off with the car keys, leaves Macca's wrappers strewn throughout the vehicle, crashes into the garage returning the car late that night, leaves the car engine running with the headlights on and cares not one iota about what the parent thinks. That's us. That's you and me running away from God. God has promised that there is actually a day coming when we will each have to face up to him and give an accounting for how we've lived. And on that day, you will wish you had right standing with him. You will wish for that in that moment. And this is what he offers you now in Jesus' death. By dying in our place, taking God's just anger at our rebellion, Jesus secures right standing for all who believe in him. On that final day, all the good deeds you've done, all your accomplishments, all your acts of great philanthropy, whatever it is, they'll mean nothing. The only way to right standing with the God of the universe is to receive this gift of right standing that he offers you by trusting in Jesus. Second, sanctification. Sanctification means cleansed by God for God. When our kids were in primary school, one day in the pouring rain, we took them down to the local park and the middle of the park had turned into a complete mud pit. And we just said, go for it. We just let them loose in the mud, in the rain, and they had an absolutely fantastic time. It was a massive mud bath. It was a great idea. It was only afterwards that I realised how difficult it is to actually get rid of mud out of clothing. Some, for some items of clothing, no matter how hard I tried, I could not get rid of the mud out of some of those clothing. That mud just stuck and we can't get rid of it. Well, that is all the times we've rejected God's word and God's way. It's what the Bible calls sin. And you and I both know there's plenty of mud in that regard on each of us. We all have regrets, things we did that hurt others that we do wish we'd never done. Moments where we could have stepped up to help somebody and we chose instead our own comfort. And that's just with regard to one another, let alone how we've wronged the God who made us and sustains us and loves us. But what God offers us here in Jesus' death is our cleansing. He offers to wash away all of that mud. He offers to cleanse you for himself so you can be washed, clean, forgiven. And finally, redemption. To be redeemed is to be rescued from what keeps you trapped. Sadly, we are all addicted to self-destructive behaviours. We're all trapped in ways that aren't God's ways and that end up in empty dissatisfaction and destruction. But through Jesus' death, God offers us to free us from our slavery to sin and selfishness so that we can know the life that truly is life, to know God and be known by him. That is the power of God displayed in Jesus' death. It's where he secures our right standing with him, where he can cleanse us for himself and where he rescues us from all that keeps us trapped in empty self-destruction. 
So when Paul wants to sum it up, as he does in verse 18 and verse 21 in this passage, he calls this being saved. This is God's power at work, saving, saving those who, without it, are perishing. So let's return to where we started. Who's the smartest person you know? And how do you know they are so smart? The smartest people in the world are those who humbly believe this message about Jesus. They're the ones who are truly wise. Remember I said at the beginning, we want a little bit of wisdom, that's why we're here at uni, but it's a wisdom towards a particular end. Because, seek for true wisdom here, found in Jesus, because of what it will secure for you. It's not going to secure you a job. It's not going to secure you a nice house in a nice suburb. It's going to secure for you righteousness, right standing with God, cleansing from God and for God. It's going to secure for you rescue from all of the empty self-destruction that we find ourselves so trapped in. It's going to secure for you salvation. Paul makes a very clear appeal to the Corinthians on this question, and we just need to hear it too, with which we'll finish. He says, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you're wise by the stands of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. Become a fool. Embrace this seemingly foolish message of a crucified Jesus, but now raised to life again. Embrace him as your Lord, your Saviour. The world will say you're crazy that you're giving away your life, but remember God's promises. He promises to save those who believe, to grant you righteousness and sanctification and redemption. What God is offering you here does not depend on your intellectual prowess, doesn't depend on your IQ or your academic transcript. God promises to save those who believe, who put their day-to-day -day trust in this Jesus and this message about him. So don't put it off. This is actually a change that you can make today. You can make it this afternoon. And if you'd like to start believing in Jesus to enjoy this right standing and cleansing and rescue that he offers, then please come and speak with me afterwards or speak to an EU friend. Or if it's not yet where you're at, don't give up the opportunity to find out more. Become truly wise. Keep coming to EU public meetings or read one of the accounts of Jesus' life, death and resurrection in the New Testament. The EU would love to meet up with you to answer any questions you've got or just to read one of those New Testament Gospels with you. And so I would suggest that you might use the... Um, so that's a problem. Um, use the QR code that I'll display at the end and the, someone from the EU will get in contact with you. And if you want to ask some more questions, I'll be around at lunch today over at ISF. Thanks for listening to today's talk. The Evangelical Union, or EU, is a student club on campus at Sydney University that seeks to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. To join us or to find out more, please visit sydneyunieu.org.